will be in Genesis chapter 50, starting in verse 15. When Joseph's, Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about the excuse me, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. We'll give the youngs a second to leave. Congratulations to Trisha and all the other graduates. Yahweh, the triune God, made the heavens and the earth and all creatures within them to share in his love. He made the spiritual beings to govern the heavens and humans to govern the earth. The creator gave humanity his blessing and authority to rule over the earth. He planted a garden temple named Eden, where man and woman would work side by side to cultivate the whole world to be a delightful and abundant kingdom. But this kingdom was stolen by rebel spiritual beings who tricked us into disobedience and ruin. The first chapters of Genesis describe the ballooning evil and chaos and death that result. The Creator brought the great floodwaters of chaos back over the world a baptism of sorts to halt the spread of evil. But sin survived the flood, stowing away in the corrupted hearts of Noah and his sons. The human family multiplied but fractured as it did so into tribes and nations at war with one another and with the Creator, madly scrambling to build towers and empires for their own honor and glory. All these thousands of years later, we still resonate with the stories in Genesis of forbidden fruit, brotherly violence, disasters, towers built in pride, because this is the world we live in. We also share in the mad scramble of human history. We also are subject to fallen spiritual powers 
be they economic, political, technological, or cultural. A poet writing shortly after the Second World War describes our plight with these words. Lost in a haunted wood, children afraid of the night who have never been happy or good. We feel the drag in our souls toward hopelessness, fear, tremendous anger, death and its henchmen, disease, disaster and violence hunt each of us from the moment that we're born. Genesis teaches us how to name and understand the evil that we find in ourselves and in our midst. It also teaches us to see the kingdom of God coming up underneath the hardship. As many of you know, I attend various house plants in my home, and a few days ago I was going to reuse a pot that uh, had originally housed some kind of a hosta. Uh, I enjoy plants, but I don't always know what exactly they are, but anyway, it, it appeared to be dead. It hadn't sprouted yet this spring, and so I began to dig it out. But as I started to do that, a few inches under the surface I discovered living bulbs with sprouts. The plant was rising again, but I did not have the patience to wait for it. And our lives are a bit like that, often enough. We cannot easily see God's kingdom. That's the truth. You know, sometimes, and I'm glad we do this each month, we have our testimony time and folks come up and they share. And that's a good thing. It, it trains us to see God in our midst. But I know for many of us, myself included, some months, I sit there and I go, well, I'm glad that they had such a great time, but I have no idea what God was doing in my life this month. It is not always easy to see God's kingdom. And our temptation is to strive for the good life in our own power, to dig up what we assume is a dead plant and replace it with one of our own. But Genesis teaches us patience and teaches us the clues of where the kingdom is sprouting in realms unseen. Yahweh, the creator's answer to the chaos of sin, was to pick one tribe out of the mess and promise that through his blessing of them, all of the tribes and peoples would be blessed and the kingdom would be restored. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel and Leah, Joseph and his brothers did not experience the full reality of what had been promised. But they saw previews of the power, grace, sacrifice, and new life in Jesus Christ. We're at the very end of Genesis, and at the end of our study of it as a church. We started, I think, in late August. It's been a long time that we've been spending in this first book of the Bible, and I think it's been well worth it. And these concluding verses of Genesis do a triple duty. They wrap up the themes, they wrap up the story of Genesis itself. They direct our attention onward to the epic story of the Exodus and the Lord's deliverance of his people. They also provide clues to the good news of what Yahweh will do, and for us, has done, through Jesus the Messiah. We see that the Messiah will restore the kingdom given to the first humans. He will reconcile us to God and one another, and he will raise up the creation laid low by death and its terrible henchmen. Restore, reconcile, and raise up are our three clues we find here in Genesis 50. In the first kingdom clue is the restoration of the kingdom. 
And at the tail end of much scheming, double-crossing, and trickery between the brothers, and the last one happens in these verses that they make up this thing that Jacob told them so Joseph wouldn't try to have them killed, Joseph's brothers worry that now that their father Jacob has died, Joseph will exact his revenge upon them for all of the tomfoolery of the last 15 chapters. And Joseph is more or less the vice president of Egypt at this point. He has immense power and can basically do whatever he wanted to do and could do anything to them. But when the brothers throw themselves at his feet and beg for mercy, Joseph assures them of their safety. And then he says something very, very important in verses 19 and 20. Joseph says, Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. If you notice some key words in there, you should. Joseph's words take us right back to Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve stand before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the serpent tells them that if they eat the forbidden fruit, they shall be like God, knowing good and evil. Knowledge of good and evil, that phrase, is used throughout the Bible as an expression for being wise, for having wisdom. When King Solomon prays for wisdom in 1 Kings, he doesn't use the word wisdom. He prays to be able to tell the difference between good and evil. To be wise is to live in harmony with God's law and to cultivate goodness, truth, and beauty in your corner of creation. That was something that the Creator was going to give people in his time. He was going to teach us how to be wise, and we talked about that last fall. Part of what Adam and Eve did is they just took it for themselves out of God's schedule. At the beginning of Genesis, this wise rule is stolen by the enemy, but here at the end, the Creator's promises to restore the kingdom are starting to come true, for here we find the man Joseph, wise ruler of Egypt, discerning the difference between good and evil. You meant this thing for evil, but God intended it for good. And he acknowledges that he is not God. His words are a mere image of what the serpent said to Eve, an inversion and a victory over his lie. And the restoration of the kingdom reaches its fulfillment in Jesus, the truly human, the faithful Israelite, the obedient son. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that Jesus is the wisdom of God. He is the first human to perfectly fulfill Yahweh's original command to be fruitful and to rule. And in Jesus' teachings and interactions, we are given the blueprints for a wise life, a life lived as God's co-rulers, associate kings and queens, if you will. We often distance ourselves, though, from Jesus' teaching. Church history is replete with examples of complicated maneuvers to get us out of actually doing the things that he says. Well, it was easy for him, we say. He was God. Indeed, he is God, but he is also, to borrow Dorothy Sayers' phrase, in fact and in truth, and in the most exact and literal sense of the words, a human, just like you and I, save that he was not subject to sin. Do not let the enemy talk you out of seeking to do what Jesus taught and what he modeled for us. There are obviously some things that only Jesus can do, like dying for the sins of the world and things like that. But he modeled for us a pattern of self-sacrifice and love, even in that. 
If it is not actually possible for us to do the things Jesus taught and did, then the New Testament is reduced to nonsense. And of course, we will trip and fall. We make many mistakes on the journey of trying to be like Jesus. But that shouldn't stop us from following. The Holy Spirit was given to help us along the way. That's what Jesus calls him in the Gospel of John, the paraclete, the helper, the friend who stands on the sidelines and cheers you as you continue the race. Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Now, if you're like me and you grew up in Sunday school, you may have asked yourself the question, well, now, who would ever think to do that? Who would ever think to build their house on sand? And the answer, generally speaking, is folks who live in tents. People who have no fixed dwelling. But God's people are no longer meant to wander. No longer meant to build our houses on the shifting sands of Egypt. The way out of sin's tyranny has been disclosed in Jesus Christ. Let us, as his people, build permanent houses on the solid rock of the promised land and the wisdom of Jesus. And sometimes I think we tell ourselves that what Jesus really wants is for us to be nice, to be nice people. You know, nice people. You wave at who you're supposed to wave at, and you smile when you're supposed to smile, and I don't know what else nice people do. <laughs> Keep your music turned down. That's the third thing I had written in my, in my, there it is. But the thing is, is that being nice usually doesn't do anybody any good. The devil's favorite people, I think, are the nice ones, because nice people leave evil untouched. They do not get involved. They walk on past the problems of the world. A nice Messiah would merely have patted the blind and the lame on the head, said, I'll pray for you, and then left them in that condition. And the kingdom of God is not a matter of niceness. It is a matter of righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. It is a matter of love, of involvement in people's lives. If you want to see the kingdom, if you feel like your potted plant of a life is dead, which we're all there occasionally, then get out there and be the kingdom. Do the things that Jesus told us to do. Do the things that he modeled. Share your faith. Listen for the Father's voice in the word. Pray for people. Use the gifts the Holy Spirit has given you. Speak God's heart over others. It's not rocket science. It's hard, but it's nothing new. If you come to church expecting that we're going to tell you to do something new, that's never going to happen. It's the same old story that it's always been. We're just fearful and disobedient. If you want to see the kingdom, get out there and become the kingdom. The second clue in Genesis 50 is reconciliation. And the pattern of brother against brother is established early in Genesis with Cain and Abel. And the Lord made it explicit to Cain that what was happening between them was not merely a human issue. He says in Genesis 4, If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. 
Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And we see here in God's words that sin is not merely mistakes that we make or bad things we do. It is an intrusive, invasive power in the world that has desires, bad ones, for us. It harkens back to the experience of Adam and Eve. They didn't just eat the fruit because they wanted to disobey. Somebody else was there who tricked them, who talked them into it. The power of sin seeks to disintegrate all human bonds and makes us murder each other. This continues throughout Genesis. Noah's sons, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and the Twelve. This very day, I'm sad to say, Israelis and Palestinians are in active conflict, as are people across the world. Joseph's brothers, who had, let's not forget, mocked him and beaten him and sold him into slavery, come before him and beg for mercy. Joseph, who isn't entirely innocent, but certainly didn't beat or mock or sell into slavery any of them, he offers that mercy. Joseph is a wise ruler and sees that the only way to mend his, this wicked world is to reconcile with our brothers and sisters and ultimately with God. So do not fear, Joseph tells them in verse 21. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph points forward to Jesus, the ultimate reconciling older brother. Romans 5 tells us, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. How much more, now that we are reconciled, will we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Seeking reconciliation with God and with one another is the way that we wage spiritual war. The disintegration of relationships on a mass scale is happening before our very eyes. We cannot deny these things. Don't assume that the challenges of our country and our community, our church or your family, are merely human, and it's just people making bad mistakes. That is happening, but these things are not merely human. The power of sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is to destroy us. Our fight is not with one another. Our fight is against the powers of evil in the heavenly places. And I continue to urge you, Calvary, fight for this fellowship of believers. Fight for your households. Fight for your community in the ways that you're able. Fight by seeking reconciliation. And I shared a quote a few weeks ago from a book I was reading about churches, and I wanted to share it again just because I thought it was just a really good quote. This is a retired pastor who says, if there is to be a fight in your church, make sure it's a good one. Fight the good fight, not the bad fight. A bad fight is with your parishioners or among them. The good fight is against the devil and his minions, not against human flesh and blood. If there is to be a fight at Calvary, brothers and sisters, let us make sure it is a good one. If you have wronged someone, or thought badly of them, or judged them for whatever decisions about whatever, 
you need to ask for forgiveness. Remember a few minutes ago when I was talking about we need to be more than nice? Yeah, this is where that gets really hard. You need to ask for forgiveness for those things. If you have been wronged, you need to work towards getting to a place to extend forgiveness. Take a lively and loving interest in one another. Invite each other over as you're comfortable to do. Send each other encouraging notes. Volunteer to serve here or in other contexts. Offer your gifts to build up the church. Like Joseph, like Jesus, let us fight the good fight for reconciliation. And the third and last kingdom clue is the raising up of creation. Genesis, famously, begins with light emerging out of darkness, but it ends in death, far from the promised land. Verse 26 says, So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Genesis ends in a grave, but Joseph's story does not end there. Jesus says that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Resurrection is coming for all creation. Genesis closes in death, far from the promised land. The house plant, for all intents and purposes, appears to be dead. And like so many of us, the people of Israel are left stranded, under threat of slavery. It looks like death and its henchmen are closing in for a final victory. And I don't think God's people are going to make it out of Egypt before they put you and I on the ground. The Lord may come back quicker. Let's hope. Let's hope it's tomorrow. Or later today. That'd be cool too. But we're probably not making it out of here before they put us in the ground. But the good news of what the Creator has done in Jesus is that exactly there, in the valley of the shadow of death, new life comes forth. Before he died, Joseph foretold that God would bring the people out of Egypt to the land he promised to Abraham. Verse 25, Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Joseph knew that Egypt would not keep him. Likewise, with even greater confidence, you and I can know that sin and death will not keep us. For as in Adam all die, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The tyranny of sin has an expiration date. The day is coming when Pharaoh will not be in charge. The nations will no longer be at war. The floodwaters of disaster will never again threaten. The spilt blood of the innocent will no longer cry out and the voice of the serpent will be silenced. The good news Joseph tells us, the good news that echoes down through the ages, is that the Lord is coming. He came in the Exodus, he came in the person of Jesus, and he is coming again on the great day of resurrection and judgment. Let us then, brothers and sisters, live in light of the times let us hold on to hope while we wait for the kingdom of God to rise up through the seemingly dead dirt of this world. Pray with me.
Father, we again thank you for this good day. And we ask by your Holy Spirit that you would help each of us to treasure up the wisdom and the good news of Genesis in our hearts. To remember, Lord, that you are with each one of us, that each one of us is known to you, that none of our lives are meaningless. Lord, we pray that we would know your presence in the midst of our fight against sin, in the midst of the hardships and the disease and the grief that we bear. Lord, we pray that you would bless our church, that we would take seriously the business of fighting the good fight alongside one another in your power. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.